0: Notaries, confessors, relations, and doctors who visit plague victims on entering their houses should open the windows so that the air is renewed and wash their hands with vinegar and rose water, and also their faces, especially around their mouth and nostrils. It is also a good idea before entering the room to place in your mouth several cloves and eat two slices of bread soaked in the best wine, and then drink the rest of the wine. Then, when leaving the room, you should douse yourself and your pulses with a sponge soaked in vinegar. Take care not to stay too close to the patient. Tommaso del Garbo, medieval Italian writer and professor of medicine in Perugia and Bologna. As you can imagine, None of the above proved effective against the plague, except the suggestion to keep one's distance from an infected person. The plague was attributed to supernatural causes such as the wrath of God, the work of the devil, the alignment of the planets, and the sinfulness of humanity. Oh my. Certain marginalized groups were also blamed, and treatment was centered on religious rites and observances. Since no one knew what caused the disease, no cure was possible. But this did not stop people from trying what they could based on the medical knowledge of the time. In this October Madness episode, we're going to look at medieval cures for the Black Death. Are you ready? Welcome to a brand new October Madness episode. Let's take a look at some of these medieval cures for the Black Death. As I mentioned, since no one knew what caused the plague, that didn't stop people from trying what they could based on the medical knowledge of the time, which came primarily from the Greek doctor Hippocrates, the philosopher Aristotle of Stagira, and the Roman physician Galen as well as religious beliefs, folklore, herbalism, and superstition. These cures, most of which were ineffective and some of which were fatal, fall roughly into five categories. Animal cures, potions, fumigations, bloodletting, and pastes, flight from infected areas and persecution of marginalized communities, religious cures, and last but not least, quarantine and social distancing. Of these five, only the last quarantine and what is now known as social distancing had any effect on stopping the spread of plague. Unfortunately, people in the 14th century were as reluctant to stay isolated in their homes as people are in present day during the COVID-19 pandemic. The wealthy bought their way out of quarantine and fled to country estates, spreading the disease further while others helped with the spread by ignoring quarantine efforts and continuing to participate in religious services and by going about their daily business. By the time the plague ended in Europe, millions were dead and the world, the survivors had known, would be radically changed. Let's take a look at medical knowledge of the time. Physicians of the day had no idea how to cope with the outbreak, Nothing in their experience came anywhere close to the epidemic which killed people, usually within three days of the onset of symptoms. Scholar Joseph A. Lagan notes, When the Black Death struck Europe in the middle of the 14th century, nobody knew how to prevent or treat the disease. Many believed they could cure it, but none of the bloodletting, concoctions, or prayers were successful. The overall intellectual framework of dealing with illness was flawed. The failure of medieval medicine is largely due to the strict adherence to ancient authorities and the reluctance to change the model of physiology and disease the ancients presented. None of Galen's work and little of others were available in Latin or Greek to the European doctor who had to rely on Arabic translations which were then translated to Latin along with the canon of medicine of the Persian polymath Ibn Sina, also known as Avicenna, whose brilliant work was often obscured by poor translations. So based on Galen's work, primarily the basis of medieval medicine was the theory of humors, that the four elements of earth, water, air, and fire, were linked to bodily fluids of yellow bile, for fire, blood, which was air, phlegm, water, black bile, earth, and that each humor was associated with color or certain taste, a kind of temperament, and a season of the year. One's health could also be affected by astrological alignment and, of course, by supernatural agencies, such as God, Satan diverse demons, and the witchcraft of marginalized peoples such as Romani, Jews, and others considered outsiders who were thought to possess knowledge of the black arts. So in researching for these October Madness episodes, I came across a lot, all right, Um, but in particular YouTube videos that I'll be posting on Beauty Unlock's Facebook page so that you can take a look if you're interested, But in one particular video entitled Creepy Things That Were Normal in Ancient Greece, there's a part that talks about how Greek uh, physicians and healers would diagnose a patient. And this goes back to what we mentioned previously about tasting things. So as I mentioned, (laughs) Greek healers, they believe that the taste of bodily fluids Held the secret of diseases and sicknesses, so I'm not gonna go into like too much detail about. <laughs> I think you can. I think you can use your imagination at this point of how they would taste bodily fluids from a patient that was ill. Now, this method um, was started off by Hippocrates, and he wasn't far off in what he was doing. <laughs> As crazy as it sounds today, (laughs) but when you think about it, they didn't have the technology that we have today, right? Um, And this is why in a lot of laboratories, they ask for samples, right? Um, Whether, well, now, okay, they ask for blood and things like that, but they do ask for different urine samples, stool samples. God, I don't even want to think about that. But anyway, they, they ask for these things today and they analyze these samples that we give them today to find out what, what's wrong with us. Except 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 years ago, it was just done differently, very differently. Oh God, <laughs> I'm going to stop myself right there, but I will be posting these videos up so you can take a look. Um, it'll be, it'll be timestamped. If you would like to watch the whole video, great. If you want to just watch that part, Awesome. If you don't want to watch it, you kind of get an idea by what I just told you right now. (laughs) So let's jump back into the article. So scholar George Childs Cohen comments on the causes given for the plague. And he writes, The plague was attributed to any and all of the following. Corrupted air and water. Hot and humid southerly winds. Proximity of swamps lack of purifying sunshine, excrement and other filth, putrid decomposition of dead bodies, excessive indulgence in food, um, particularly in fruits, God's wrath, punishment for sins, and the conjunction of stars and planets. Religious fanatics asserted that human sins had brought the dreadful pestilence. They roamed from place to place, scourging themselves in public, the flagellant as they were called in French, or the flagellants in English. There was panic everywhere, with men and women knowing no way to stop death except to flee from it. There were many people, however, who did not take flight, but tried to find some means of fighting the disease where they were. Based on the medical knowledge of the time, folk cures, which had been passed down from generations, Christian belief, superstition, and prejudice people tried any suggestion offered to defeat death. So as I mentioned before, one of the categories was animal cures. So one of the most popular cures was the Vickery method, named after the English doctor Thomas Vickery, who first proposed it. So a healthy chicken was taken and its back and rear plucked clean, This bare part of the live chicken was then applied to the swollen nodes of the sick person and the chicken strapped in place. When the chicken showed signs of illness, it was thought to be drawing the disease from the person. It was removed, washed, and strapped back on. And this continued until the chicken, or the patient, died. Another attempt at a cure was to find and kill a snake. Chop it into pieces and rub the various parts over swollen bubos. The snake, which was synonymous in Europe with Satan, was thought to draw the disease out of the body as evil would be drawn to evil. Pigeons were used in this same way, but why the pigeon was chosen is still unclear. Okay, and the chicken isn't? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> An animal much sought after for its curative power was the unicorn, and you thought this wasn't going to get any worse. (laughs) Drinking a powder made of the ground-up horn of the unicorn mixed in water was thought to be an effective remedy, and was also among the most expensive. The unicorn could not easily be caught and had to be lulled into submission by a young virgin maiden. Doctors who managed to procure the powder of a ground unicorn horn used it to treat snake bites, fever, convulsions, and serious wounds. And so it was thought to work equally well with the plague. There is no evidence that it did, however, any more than the cures involving the chicken or the snake. Potions, fumigations, bloodletting, and pastes. The unicorn potion was not the only or most expensive cure offered to the nobility or wealthy merchant class. Another remedy was eating or drinking a small quantity of crushed emeralds. The physician would grind the emeralds with a mortar and pestle and then administer it to the patient as a fine powder mixed with either food or water. Those who could not afford to consume emeralds drank arsenic or mercury, which killed them faster than the plague. One of the best-known potions was Four Thieves' Vinegar, which was a combination of cider, vinegar, or wine, with spices such as sage, clove, rosemary, and wormwood, among others, thought to be a potent protection against the plague. It allegedly was created and used by Four Thieves who were able to rob the homes of the dying and graves of the dead, because the drink made them immune to the plague. Four Thieves Vinegar is still made and used today in the practice of homeopathic medicine as an antibacterial agent, though no one in the modern day claims it can cure the plague. The The most popular potion among the wealthy, oh, another one, was known as Theriac. Ligan notes it was very difficult to prepare. Recipes would often contain up to 80 ingredients, and often significant amounts of opium. Well, I mean, if you're using significant amounts of opium, opium, seriously, I mean, by the end of it, you won't even care what the hell happens to you, whether the plague is in you, near you, or anything. That was just my bit, by the way. The ingredients were ground into a paste, which was mixed with syrup and consumed as needed. Precisely what the ingredients were and why it worked, however, is unclear. Oh, I'll tell you why it works, because of the opium. (laughs) It didn't cure the plague, it just pretty much knocked you out completely. Aside from potions, clearing the air was considered another effective remedy. Since the plague was thought to spread by bad air, homes were fumigated with incense or simply smoke from burning thatch. People carried bouquets of flowers, which they held to their faces, not only to ward off the stench of decomposing bodies, lovely, but because it was thought this would fumigate one's lungs. It was this practice which gave rise to the children's rhyme, ring around the rosy, a pocket full of posy, ashes, ashes, we all fall down in reference to the practice of filling one's pockets with flowers or sweet-smelling substances to keep one safely fumigated at all times. As the rhyme suggests, this was as ineffective as any of the other cures. It was also thought that one could fumigate oneself by sitting close to a very hot fire, which would draw the disease out by heavy sweating. Another technique was to sit by an open sewer, as the bad air which was causing one's sickness would gravitate to the bad air of the sewer, d- sewage of the stream, pond, or pit used for dumping human waste. I'm worried at this point. Bloodletting was a popular remedy for all kinds of illnesses and was well established by the medieval period. It was thought that by drawing out bad blood, which caused illness, health would be restored by the good blood, that remained. The preferred method was leeching, in which a number of leeches would be placed on the patient's body to suck out the bad blood. But leech collectors were a highly paid profession and not everyone could afford this treatment. For the less affluent, a small incision was made in the skin with a knife and the bad blood collected in a cup and disposed of. Another method along these same lines was cupping, in which a cup was heated and applied upside down to a patient's skin especially the buboes, to draw the sickness into it. Before I continue, I would like to say that cupping therapy does have its benefits. One of them is obviously not to cure plague, but it is still used today, and we call it in Greek ventouses. And my grandmother used to do this to my father back in the day. But again, I would like to mention it does not cure plague. And I'm sure that many of you know that leeches are still used today, and again... They are not used to cure plague, but they are used um, in, in modern medicine today. Aside from pastes, doctors also prescribed a cream made of various roots, herbs, and flowers, which was applied to the buboes once they were lanced. Other cures also involved human waste, which was also turned into a paste for the same purpose, which in no doubt led to greater infection. And also, (laughs) another cure was clean urine and they believed that it had medicinal properties. So people would bathe in it or they would drink it and urine collectors were paid well by doctors for a clean product. I'm very, very worried by this point. How's everybody doing so far? Everybody good? Alrighty then. (laughs) Let's continue flight from infected areas, and persecution. Those not wishing to bathe in urine, be smeared with feces, or try the other cures left the affected region or city, but this option was usually only available to the wealthy. Another unfortunate way of curing the plague was by striking at what they considered its source, marginalized groups who were considered outsiders. Cohn writes, in places the plague was blamed on cripples, nobles, and Jews who were accused of poisoning the public wells and were either driven away or killed by fire or torture. In addition to those groups mentioned, many others were also singled out who were in any way considered different and did not conform to the standards of the majority. In other words, many of us would be fucked. Religious cures. For the most part, this standard was set by the medieval church, which informed the worldview of the majority of the population of Europe at the time. Religious cures were the most common, and besides the public flagellation mentioned above, took the form of purchasing religious amulets, charms, prayer, fasting, attending mass, persecuting those thought responsible, hmm, and participating in religious processions. The Pope eventually put a stop to the public flagellations as ineffective and upsetting to the populace. But by that time, participants had spread the plague to every town or city they had visited. Bravo. Last but not least, quarantine and what is now known as social distancing. The only effective means of stopping the spread of the plague, though not curing it, was separating the sick from the well through quarantine. The port city of Ragusa, which is modern-day Dubrovnik in Croatia, at the time under the control of Venice, was the first to initiate this practice through a 30-day isolation period imposed on arriving ships. Ragusa's population had been heavily depleted by the plague in 1348, and they recognized that the disease was infectious and could be transmitted by people. Ragusa's policy was effective and was adopted by other cities and extended to 40 days under the law of Quarantino, 40 days, which gives English its word quarantine. Although quarantine and social distancing seemed to have had a positive effect, governments were slow to implement the policies and people were reluctant to follow them. In many cities, the quarantine practice and stations were put into effect too late, such as in Venice and Genoa, where half of the people succumbed. Milan, on the other hand, imposed stricter measures and enforcement and had greater success in controlling the spread of the disease. The authorities tolerated no dissension among its citizens in obeying the laws of quarantine and at one point completely sealing the infected occupants of three houses in their homes where, Presumably, they died. In 1350, they built a structure outside the city walls, the Pest House, where plague victims were housed and caregivers could tend them. As the plague raged on, other measures were attempted, such as washing money with vinegar, fumigating letters and documents with incense, and encouraging people to think positive thoughts as it seemed to become clear that a patient's general attitude greatly affected the chances of survival. None of these proved as effective as separating the infected from the healthy, but people still broke quarantine and continued the spread of the disease. Sound familiar? By the time the plague had run its course, over 30 to 50% of the population of Europe was dead. The loss of population transformed European society It ended the feudal system, establishing wages for former serfs, and elevating women's statuses in that many mothers, wives, and daughters survived the males of the family and assumed their roles. Another notable consequence was a shift in focus from God in heaven to humanity and life on earth, which would eventually give rise to the Renaissance. To many historians, the Black Death marked the end of the Middle Ages and the start of the Modern Age. This conclusion is sound in that afterwards, people's disillusionment with the religious, political, and medical paradigms of the past inspired them to seek alternatives, and these would eventually find full expression in the Renaissance, which lay the foundation for the world of the modern era. Woo, that was a lot. And I must say that that was our longest October Madness episode. But there was a lot to unpack and unload in this episode, that's for sure. And there was a lot of um, (laughs) shocking moments. (laughs) Oh my goodness, all the things that we learn. And it's worth mentioning that history apparently repeats itself. And I believe that we can draw many similarities from the plague or let's say the behavior of people during the plague over 600 years ago and COVID-19 today. I could say that people's behavior today can be quite questionable, for lack of a better word. And although we might not be smearing feces all over our bodies or drinking urine, there have been many who could not deal with quarantine or social distancing rules. (laughs) And here we are, at the end of 2021, and COVID is still around. Let's see how long this motherfucker lasts. (laughs) With all that being said, I hope you enjoyed this episode. I hope you found it as insightful as I did. I know there were some bits that were gross, but we got to delve deeper and look at the many ways our ancestors believed Helped cure the plague. I'm Carissa Vickis, reminding you that plague still exists today. Don't go looking for chickens to strap onto your body, don't crush emeralds to mix with your water, and stay away from arsenic, mercury, and unicorn horns. Stay safe and enjoy your weekend. <laughs>